out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Thank you, Jim, for that uh, interesting update in life. Hello, welcome. This is David Eastor. This is the C86 show, always bringing you the finest in indie pop. And before beyond, as you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of the one and only Big Stick, because I spoke to John Gill and Yana Trance very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and the creative process, and also drag racing. I discovered so much about drag racing. Anyway, this is a three-way conversation based in Norwich, New York. What not to like? Anyway, this is the uh, interview, and after several minutes of interesting chat, this is the first bit where we get down to that exciting idea, well, question of those early musical influences. Jana, it's over to you. Um, well, to speak for myself, I'm Jana, and um, I grew up in not a musical family per se, but they uh, really liked music a lot. Um, uh, so I basically grew up listening to what my parents, and I have an older sister, so what they were listening to, which was a lot of um, classical music, and then um, one of my early influences was um, Julie Andrews' The Sound of Music. Classic. And stuff. Yeah, and um, and also, like, right, like the theme to Dr. Zhivago and, you know, stuff like that. And and then um, I listened to, uh, all the time, like, to um, AM radio. So, you know, everything that would be played on there, uh, I, you know, would follow and like. And um, and then I had a, my first 7-inch record was a Sly and the Family Stone uh, record, uh, seven inch. So, you know, my influences are very vast and wide, but, um, you know, it's just like music in general. And yes. I don't know really what more that I can say about, about so, that. Without giving too much away, I was born in the mid sixties. So my formative years were probably sort of the early seventies when I was in the UK, we listened to sort of top of the pops. And then there was on a Sunday right. evening, they would have the charts and, the, and we would sort of almost, I can remember as a slight family thing, sitting there with the radio on listening to the top 40 or the top 20, getting terribly mm-hmm. excited because, you know, music at that stage or singles, you know, were quite a big thing and they would move really slowly apart from occasional ones like Laid. But mostly they sort of would go in at number 38 and then the following week, week might be 33. And we'd be very excited with this long pro- So a record would sort of, even if you didn't particularly like it, it was often on the school bus or on the radio, would sort of be in your, con- you know, in the consciousness. And now obviously I'm, you know, you can sort of go, oh, yes, the lyrics of that song from 40 years yeah, well, ago. I think um, that um, ABC Radio used to have a yearly like uh, top 100 countdown. Also, so that uh, sounds similar to that. Yes. Yeah. Well, you figure in the in the sixties and early seventies, and um, you know, top top even top forty AM radio was a bit more eclectic, and you know, you could hear uh, you know American Woman right. on and one minute, and then Fly the next minute, and you know, it more was of a, a variety. It was a diverse and. You know, right? Alice Cooper. You could hear "Schools Out," and then, you know, then Joan Baez or something. So it was kind of a right, a pretty diverse. Um, 
menu. Yes. Well, I remember, I guess that was the moment. I, I now remember being in the primary school, having some Proustian flashback here, aren't I? But yes, listen to Sweet. But then it was the Alice <laughs> Cooper song, Skills Out, which I realised that was one of the first times where I could have realised my parents didn't like that song a lot mm-hmm. and thought it was uh-huh. a, uh, they thought it was a bad song and obviously when you're about 10 you're thinking hey this is really exciting my parents don't like something that I like and without realizing not having the con- not having the awareness of what that kind of means it did feel also quite exciting because it was such an anthem mm-hmm. right well you know not to to mention the fact that there you know lots sometimes A&R people at different record labels there's that um the the school of thought to piss off the parents um, method and usually at, often that's a very surefire way to you know sell some records to just intentionally make things that make the parents uneasy or something like that but, yes yeah. well quite and then and then as the 70s were trucking on were you starting to get into the the world that I suppose with 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 being in America were you growing up in New York during the 70s Oh yeah. So well, did, New Jersey. New mostly. Jersey. Because New uh, Jersey, New York, it's kinda like the same thing. Yes. Because speaking off the New New York sometimes with a phony underage uh ID to get into the clubs like the C B G Bs and, and that sort of thing. You know, that that's when you could have a fake ID and you know, work your way into the, the clubs and oh, yeah. and that sort of thing. Yes, because um, having sort of, well, I'm one of those people who just love my rock documentaries, but there was one on New York where in the 70s it sounded quite grim and almost people were going to abandon it, or the authorities. So there was that kind of birth of sort of punk, disco and rap. So were you mm-hmm. were, were you sort of um, obviously aware of that kind of, kind of economic and social sort of deprivation? E- yes. Well, I guess... I'm sorry with this, you know, like, you know, the Sex Pistols sort of thing, Dead Boys and 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 stuff. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that that sort of unfortunately did creep into some of the, the record stores, some of the cooler record stores. And, you well, know, it wasn't unfortunate. No, I mean, unfortunate that, um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't like necessarily in the bigger record stores. And the chains, but oh, there, yeah. we, there were some local record stores that carried the, the, these records, and then, you know, you, you, you would get exposed to that. And, um, you know, also even in New Jersey, there were, like, sort of underground bands that were kind of like glam meets, like, sort of nasty rock and and things like that. There was a there was a band in New Jersey called Harlow that used to play the, the bars in, around here, and, you know, there, there was... It was good stuff, but they unfortunately they you know a lot of these bands those kind of bands didn't make records. No, right. Quiet. You got to go to a lot of those shows, John. Unfortunately, um, you know I didn't uh, get to go to a lot of the clubs at that age, but you know started really going out to the shows when I met you. So that was uh, exciting. So can you remember the first time you went to see, uh, the uh, CBGBs? Um, I, I well, I think it was one of the like even probably a weeknight, an early weeknight when it was like a band's uh, audition audition night or or something like that. So, you know, there were like or um, Sundays they would have those uh, all day like shows too, right? Where right. Well, later later than years later though, mm-hmm. we'd go to the hardcore shows or the what I guess what you call punk rock shows on Sundays. You know, yes, they, right. they, was, they even had a, a, what do you call a matinee? It mm-hmm. was like during the day and bands like, uh, 
you know, Ludacrist and and a lot of um, PTL Club and, mm-hmm. and bands like that would play. Yes, because I sort of there was a brilliant film I saw a couple of years ago on Danny Fields, and he was kind of like Mister on the scene, wasn't he? And he sort of, you know, worked with the Doors, worked with Nico, then he did stuff with the Stooges, and then the Ramones. So um, the Ramones coming along in ninety nineteen. Um, 75, 76. I mean, that was the kind of period when John Peel had slightly lost his way. John Peel was this amazing DJ. God, of course. Yes, you right. know. we know him. Yes, I of mean, course. Just, yeah. <laughs> yes, well, John, yes, this is this is our great introduction to Big Stick, really, isn't it? Um, his his love of your. But yeah, so so he, I think during that early 70s, he was kind of floundering because he was right on the zeitgeist in the 60s and he was doing the perfume garden off kind of, I don't know, on Radio Caroline through the night and he had the Captain Beefheart and Jimi Hendrix the door so he was right on there but the early 70s you know he was slightly struggling and playing still playing the Grateful Dead but realized that it probably wasn't kind of you know so happening Mm -hmm. anymore and I think it was when he put the Ramones on and then the Damned then things started to change again so I guess the the Grateful Dead was huge um you know a huge band over in Jersey and you know in the high schools and all the kids liked them and you know all the you know, the ones, the staples were, you know, you know, the Led Zeppelin and all the, you know, the... The Doors. The Doors, of course, the Doors were big and... Yes. You know, I, Classic rock. Classic. And Elton of course, too, was big. And yes. Lots of, lots of bands, you know, were just... Uh, it was such a, a a scale. I mean, hundred. it was, seemed like there were hundreds of bands that were cool back then, you know, and it was yeah. really good. But I guess with people like the Sex Pistols and then a lot of those punk kids, they were beginning to feel like that, you know, the Led Zeppelins, the Grateful yeah. Dead. They weren't really talking about... They wanted to go in another direction and, yeah, they weren't feeling that anymore. They definitely weren't feeling that. So then, you know, in the UK, you know, you had the punk period, which was, you know, obviously most scenes don't last for that long before it all becomes a bit turgid and sad. And then in the 80s, the early 80s, the one thing in the UK was there was a lot of unemployment at the time. So a lot of people were on job seekers allowance or enterprise allowance where you just could claim the doll. And there wasn't that many other things to do. So there were a lot of bands that started to appear in that early period. So what was what was your, you know, as, as the decades were trucking through, when did you start sort of becoming a bit more interested in forming a band? Well, we, we we when we met in art school, just like you know, thousands and thousands of other yeah, people which was um in nine the end of uh, nineteen seventy eight, I believe we met, and then by nineteen seventy nine, we were pretty much together and starting to play music together, and then I guess when we actually started to think about recording and you know taking it more seriously was probably the beginning of the the eighties. Um, yeah. Yes. Right. We right we did stuff you know back even back then and it was kind of like an exper- experimental and um you know we actually would make cassettes and uh, like WFMU and some radio stations would play them but then it wasn't until like 85 86ish where we you know cut the drag racing uh 7 inch that we actually you know got some sort of uh, international um recognition well quite yes so so we've um because <clears throat> I've got 
This is my theory, actually. I got indie pop down between the years of 83 to 87, which is the years of the Smiths, basically. Um, so there was the kind of golden period of jingly jangly pop, which had people like, obviously, the Smiths, and there was Orange Juice, and there was the uh, June Brides and the Go-Betweens from Australia. So there was a lot of that kind of sound, and things were generally going well. But by the end of that kind of the Smiths period in 87, the music sort of scene started to change again. Were you aware of that kind of kind of slightly you know like bands like the brilliant corners and the wolf hands and yeah yeah no. yeah well you know they in around here they had like the feelies and and you know bands right it was a little bit of a, a different thing or you know not necessarily as like guess aggressive or, or what have it but there was a, certainly some talented some, some talented acts at the time, but then, you know, we sort of got into more of the harsher or the punkish or the experimental, whatever it was. And it was a time when, you know, there were all thousands of fanzines in um, New York. There was a store called See Here that had all the fanzines and, you know, we used to get the fanzines and read them and sort of like reflect in our own music what we got from that yes. and sort of how it happened. So when so when did Big Flame Big Flame sorry Big Big Stick sorry there was a band called Big Flame um, from Manchester so yeah so how did did you have a moment where you thought we are Big Stick? Um, yeah yeah I guess I guess so I mean when we first met we were Big Stick but we were we were sort of um, not organized or we were you know we would play guitar and bass and I you know we record different things on what was called a simulsync cassette deck which is just kind of like a two-track cassette deck and bounce from cassette decks to cassette decks and create music so we were big stick then it's just that we you know it wasn't until like 86 when we actually said oh well let's you know press a record and and every you know do that go that route and but before we were like big stick it's just that we weren't we we were sort of like in a state of suspended animation or something. <laughs> yes. Well, we that was generally the state that we were in in the 80s with sort of romantic melancholia thrown in just for good luck. But that was a I think that might have just been a UK thing. So can you remember you know the process of recording your classic um track which was which was Drag Race and which obviously it was the one that John Peel just loved so much and obviously us indie kids loved as well. Well, it was like we we go to the drag strip with one of those um, Walkman old cassette Walkman recorders, and we recorded the sounds of the cars. And then in the apartment, we used the Simulsync cassette deck where we put together a beat and you know a bass thing and the guitar. And it was it was a lot of um editing like with the cassette decks using the pause button like how people would use a razor blade at the time for open reel mm -hmm. recording so i sort of um did a lot of sporadic editing and i you know yana said yeah. the line in the summer i wear my tube top and eddie takes me to the drag strip and um you know we just we were bold enough to you know use our own finances and uh press the records and send them out to everyone all the magazines and all the radio stations and john peel or i i'm not sure how i think john peel either heard the record from um 
that fellow, I think Daniel Miller from Mute may have turned him onto it or, mm-hmm. or, I yeah. But, but yeah, it was like highly experimental and, um, you know, we weren't really trying, we weren't really following any sort of, in, you know, ingredients or, you know, any kind of, um, strategy. Yeah. Set path. It was just sort of, um, like sort of haphazardly, you know, kind of experimental put together and, you know, we we're like, Oh, this is cool. Yes. Blimey. But somehow was... it still struck a chord in sort of a pop culture, Thing, I guess not largely because of the tube top reference or whatever it may be. So it was sort of like even, you know, people who weren't necessarily in the underground scene would, if they heard it on their yeah. uh, radio. Well, I think even the uniqueness of being, you know, a girl, a girl and a guy together doing music was sort of not conventional. You know, I mean, you know, besides, I don't know, like, well, yeah, I mean, I guess there was a few. I guess I was just thinking that the Vaseline, there was the Vaselines, weren't there, I think. And and in the 70s, we had a very cheesy couple called Peters and Lee who were, um, Mm -hmm. they were Right, I remember, that sounds a lot like peaches and herb. (laughs) I think he he was, um, yes, they sat on sort of raised Was that the how do you do people or no? I don't know. They, they. I think they were the people who might have been on the Andy Williams show, or sort of like Saturday Night. I shouldn't have mentioned yeah. Peters and Lee. I think they were quite obscure. I'll have to Google <laughs> Peters. <laughs> but I just remember for a few years they they seemed to be on top of the pops a lot, singing romantic mm-hmm. ballads, which this probably isn't in the same category at all. But anyway, right. Because, but still, uh, you know, it's like uh, what we did and who we were. I guess just somehow made it made it what it was yes absolutely because that single came out that was 86 a great a great year for music which can fe- which featured also sort of your other classic which is i look like shit and uh, hell on earth and, mm-hmm. and jesus was born on a, an indian reservation so did that how long did they those five tracks take to um, bring together was that over a year or was it longer no i think it was rather quick that they came together yeah. what do you, you think john it was- yeah it may have been like a a matter of of months, you know. It was a very um, the format for recording it and and putting it together was kind of stream streamlined, even though it was erratic or, or something. So yeah. those things just sort of like um, came together. It was a productive period. It was yeah. yeah, absolutely. And also because this got picked up, that was Blast First, which were the hip and happening label. Because cause mm-hmm. us, us indie kid fans, we loved buying buying into labels, didn't we? How, uh-huh. You know, even you know, you know, as yeah. you do, and um, and obviously that was one of those ones that, um, yes, came with a certain kudos, a bit like you know, Four AD or Rough Trade or Fifty Third and Third Records. So there was there was a sort of, yeah, and and Blast First had people because there was the head of David, wasn't there, and the Buttholes and Dinosaur Junior. So were you? Yeah kind of like wow we're not well, just there put- was a label remember um eg e, was it eg records what was interested in the for a bit they were like sort of a, a, a like a frippino a label frip, uh, pop indie thing sort of. yeah, but that was before quite before but but the last first mm-hmm. you know it, it was a little it was it was nice to you know step into that um thing with uh paul smith and you know the sonic youth and all those you know the people of that that last first era. It was a, it, they really you know they really had a good thing uh, going on. Yes. Yeah, so nice was that? Family. I mean, had you at that stage? Were you having to sort of quickly think, oh my God, we're now a band, and actually we've sold more than 
a hundred copies at some sort of you know, <laughs> desperate. No, gig. but yeah. <laughs> It was, yeah, I mean, it, it, the whole thing where we were doing, you know, yeah. um, features in the enemy and sounds and and we were, you know, we'd be in England and we would hear Peel playing us on the radio and everything. Sure, it definitely was a, you know, we definitely understood that yeah. we we got pretty um, fortunate. Yeah, it was like a, a good affirmation of, um, you know, what we decided to do. Yes, absolutely. And then, and so, I mean, like with a lot of artists... And, you know, people, have, you know, I've interviewed, often they're not sort of sure what's going to happen. And suddenly it's like, oh, my God, it's it's this one's caught. You know, we, we were sort of, I wouldn't say on fire, but, you know, that's a bit of a cliche. But suddenly having to quickly make it up. So did, because your next kind of release was, you know, Crack Attack, wasn't it? Um, mm-hmm. So did that, did that come together quite quickly? Yeah, that also was sort of like a quick process of a beat and, just you know we got the beat from this guy um Ted Courier who was like a a big R&B producer in New York City he worked with like um George Clinton and mm-hmm. all these different acts and and he, he mixed um for WBLS also right WBLS FM which is a huge station in New York but and still is right i believe so yeah but, yeah. but we um yeah crack attack well of course that was during the you know the horror of the crack era and then you know we did crack attack and of course it yeah. was sort of a different kind of genre i guess or whatever but well, the, one of the good things that came out of that was our um you know our frequent trips to the uk and um you know getting to see um you know sheffield and uh the studio right. out there and you know and that was a good good time yes but we were surprised though you know because we it was like crack attack would be like number one at like WNYU college radio and we were I was sort of surprised is that is that there's as many people if not more who know us for crack attack even than drag racing or, or something it's kind of a strange strange thing how that record sort of like took off but it doesn't have like a lot of you know guitar and Mm-hmm. It's a different kind of thing, but somehow... Got it, more promoted, maybe. I don't yeah. know. Maybe. Yes. Well, yeah. yeah. But then, I mean, bizarrely, well, I don't know, is that bizarre? But there was a brilliant box set that came out, which I managed to get a copy of, which was the Devil's Jukebox, which was this oh, fantastic yeah. compilation mm-hmm. of um, singles that came in a beautiful box, which was named after one of your um, tracks, which you must have been right. really... Sh- yeah. You must have been yeah, really... Yeah, that was kind of like you said... Um, you know, one of the times when it felt like, oh, my God, you know, we're in a box set. This is great, you know. And, right, we have the title track, and we're, yeah, right, The Devil's Jukebox was like a song that, you know, we wrote kind of about that sort of more different sort of Devil's Jukebox sort of scene with all the, you know, because let's face it, that at that time there was an emergence of all these, you know, Slayer and, all these sort of bands and everything. So the song was sort of like about that scene. And and our experience, more or less, of being, you know, in it, too, I think. Right, well, like, we had friends in in, in that scene, and, you know, we we, we saw a lot of those bands, too. But then the Devil's Jukebox, um, it was, you know, a pretty pretty big production. It was a little bit of a, 
a change in in what we we are or did or or something Mm -hmm. but it was uh, Mm -hmm. the nothing short of total because it was also on the nothing nothing short of total war Mm -hmm. compilation which was an lp that had you know savage pencils artwork on there and great artists yeah right and then of course right the box set itself of all those 45s and i think it was either sounds or nme they actually did a contest in conjunction with the Devil's Jukebox, where they got a real jukebox, filled it up with all the singles that are in the, the box set, and they put like a devil's tail and horns and cosmetic changes to it, and it was actually some sort of contest. Where Did anyone actually ever win that, that jukebox? I wonder. I imagine I, so. I, I yeah. don't know who has it. But, you know, even the line in that song, you know, the flying across the ocean, you know, really is about, you know, like the trips to England and how much they meant to us. and. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. And did you get to meet John Peel? Um, no, we, we didn't. Meet we, it was our understanding that he was rather shy about pe- meeting people or something at that point. But, um, no, he. I mean, he was nice that he actually put us in his special box of, you know, 100 or so, records that he would have grabbed in the event of his house on fire or yes and, and that whole thing and it was great that we got included in the bbc um broadcast of the by the same name i think it was called john peel's box and you know they they showed a, a, a clip of us on there but no we never met him yes because i do i remember you know being Obviously, very keen. It's slightly obsessed with John Peel. You know, yeah. So I've watched that documentary and was kind of fascinated because I think a lot of people didn't realise such a thing existed. And um, and obviously, mm-hmm. um, yes, we were all. Are they the... still playing that on on the air every so often? Or well, I think it's probably on YouTube now. You can probably okay. sort of listen, watch yeah. it there. And yeah, um, yeah. yes, I, I seem to remember occasionally I'll sort of Google things like John Pill and that has come up. So I'd imagine it's probably there. But it's brilliant, you know, and I suppose that is the thing that, um, yes, you know, there were a few bands that just, you know, we'll, we'll always, yeah, I suppose John Pill did sort of help sort of, elevate oh, yeah. to a, another audience because because the other thing you know with a lot of bands that i've interviewed they have a bit of a five-year narrative especially from the 80s period where you know they get together for about 12 months things are going mm-hmm. so so they you know a single you know they they, they do a single that john peel picks up and plays they get a john peel session they do the first album things are going good second album not so good and most bands in the uk if they ever tour america they they often that's the end of the band they come back and are broken spiritually mm. broken mm, to in peace yeah. <laughs> so america always <laughs> goes but but the other thing that i sort of hadn't really appreciated was that sense of you know a musical chain uh, musical fashion changing because a lot of those bands from that 80s period that i mentioned from kind of that indie world of 83 to 87 the thing that really knocked them out was the kind of the change of drugs which was the ecstasy world of you know and the dance scene that mm-hmm. had, had sort of developed with you know people like the stone mm-hmm. roses and the happy mondays mm-hmm. yeah. and the soup dragons and so i think a few bands like you know probably the wolf Hounds and june brides by then it just felt that they weren't going to be able to do the dance album so that was going to be the end of their and then after that you had grunge so were you you know as you were sort of I mean you were a, a, a couple so that's a different sort of dynamic but also were you you know having to sort of just sail through different fashion and and sort of or did you sort of not sort of really take too much attention to that well 
I guess we did. I mean, we went along with it as, you know, it's pretty evident on the Crack Attack cover for a while. But then, you know, it wasn't something that had to stay or had to stick. You know, we kind of, you know, can change with the times, I think. And, um, right. you well, know, now we're, and if you saw along. the cover of our newest album, which is simply yeah. titled LP, it's just sort of uh, yeah. more casual. Yeah. It's not all, you know, nothing, no costumes, no dress up, you know, it's different. And, you know, that's okay, too. It's, you know, you don't have to stay, stick with the with the fashion, you know, because uh, obviously it changes, so you have to change with it or, you know, not, not even pay attention to it. You know. Right. Yes, right. because, you know, because in sort of 91, which was the sort of height of grunge, and you did Hoochie Q time, was that, was that a sort of a, another sort of pinnacle for you? Well, that's probably when we started recording. Oh, no, that wasn't when we started recording. I'm sorry, the the new, um, well, I call it the new record, but it's been in, you know, we... Oh. Well, Hoochie time, though, that was a departure from going from the bouncing cassette format to we got a um, an 8-track open reel um, TAC machine. Yeah. And that's when we, we recorded um, Hoochie time and a lot of... Uh, different tracks, but Hujiku time also was kind of strange because when that um, 10 inch came out, and it was a 10 inch record on on the Blast First label, everyone was pr- pretty surprised about how much it actually sold, and um, somehow that that did uh, get a lot of play. It was, and it was sort of like a stomping, swampish sort of song. It was something different, but um, yeah, Hujiku time surprised a, a, a lot of people especially yes. at blast first that they were shipping so many copies of it yeah and, right, and then we went into the um the drag racing underground lp which not too many people i think even had uh, associated or recognized that it uh, actually was a uh, big stick the big stick band um that was the drag racing underground lp because um, there's a lot of um very different type of music on there uh, too that um, you know, I mean, it did see the light of day, but you know, it might, um, you know, we might be thinking of a re-release of some of these things. A reissue, possibly. A reissue, yeah. Right. Right. Supposedly, it was one of Kurt Cobain's um, favorite to yeah. listen on the tour bus or something like that. Is this <laughs> is this the um, hedonist chariot? Yes, the hedonist chariot. Hedonist right. chariot. And was that? Did you say that was one of Kurt Cobain's favorites? Yes, yes, the Hedonist Chariot, the Drag Racing Underground, the Hedonist Chariot right. album, which had Hoochie Coo Time on it, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, a lot of the more brash. We, you know, we recorded yeah. some pretty brash songs like uh, Scum Rookie's Cafe, yeah, and um, I Live the Good Life, which were Shake you know, Baby Shake, and, right? Yes, right, because um, you know, despite the way we actually recorded it, you know, with the uh, W. 30 Rollins that I think Paul Smith even purchased for us back in the day. Um, you know, it sounds so completely live, uh, which is such so amazing to me, being that the way we really recorded it wasn't, you know, that wasn't live at all. But somehow we pulled it off, so it actually sounds so, you know, so authentically live. And it's just that, that amazes me about it. Yes, because because um, as I was sort of talking about, they get, you know, a lot of bands who sort of go for five years and then that's about it. One of the, the other thing that sort of knocks them is the fact that they haven't made any money. Were you able to sort of survive as musicians? Well, 
Well, here and there, you know, we also did a drag racing. Yeah. The drag racing underground was a drag racing video business that we we did, where we actually produced drag racing videotapes, and you know, so that sort of helped us along during the uh, right at the track of the the cars, and you know, sold them to the people who you know drive the cars on the drag strip, and um, yeah, I mean, we didn't like really see that much money from the music, but. You know, we always kept doing it anyway because we like to do it. So yes, I mean, we we would get our statements of you know all these plays, and you know we still get an incredible amount of plays and everything. But we've never, you know, we've never become well. You know, we've never been able to get shorefront um, property. Yeah, from not, not regular rotation on um, you know, commercial radio on commercial radio. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so as 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 sort of uh, as the nineties were sort of trucking on, you were still very prolific at this this stage, weren't you? Because you did various singles and then pro drag as well. So was it sort of just a case of just rolling with it? Yeah, yeah, I guess, and uh, just wanting to keep doing it. And um... yeah. well, pro drag was on. We did that with a New York label, and that, and but the, what was good about the pro drag period is we went on a, a pretty extensive national tour with um, My Life, and the Thrill Kill Cult, and um, My Life with the Thrill my, Kill. My right, My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult. Sorry, right. <laughs> uh, but they they're really great, and they took us on the road and we, right. we played with them and and, the, yeah. and it, it it was really it was really and good. there actually are a lot of. Um, like some live videos from then, which we still have, you know, that we never released, which would actually be pretty cool to, to put up on, um, you know, YouTube or something and, uh, you know, and do that. And, yes. you know, it's also worth noting that Groovy Man, the the vo- vocalist from My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult, he sings uh, a duet with Yana on the newest album simply titled LP, called Venomous Voodoo Princess. So we were glad that we were able to have, um, you know, Groovy Man on the, on the newest Right, because they're, they're pretty cool. I mean, you know, if you're not familiar with them, you know, they were the band in the movie The Crow and stuff like that. So they have quite a cool oh, history. Had, and, um, industrial pioneers. Right, and that, and that song, too, um, was it Cool World, or what were they? Well, the Sex on Wheels. The Sex on Wheels song. Pretty big hit. Yeah. Sounds very groovy. So was there ever a period, then, when you were sort of as big stick? Did you, uh, was there ever conversations about letting it drop for a bit? Because then, sort of after the mid-90s, sort of 90s, there was quite a gap, isn't there? Right. Well, we sort of, like, went into the drag racing business and there was all sorts of semi-tumultuous personal issues with family and friends and things and finances but we did yeah. still keep recording which was interesting we still kept we had a then we had a 16 track analog atari uh open reel one inch machine and we would you know we we kept at it we we pr- were pretty persistent even though it was like slow going i mean the newest album that we did lp it a lot of that stuff is like several years old in in the oh, making yeah. yeah like i was saying before right we started to record or think of recording that album like maybe uh in like 10 years ago or more in yeah. 2000 2001 
I think is when we first were like, oh, let's do a new album. Yes. <laughs> and, it, you know, just because we had to work so slow at it, you know, because of reasons that, you know, so what? It's just like still we did it one song at a time and just kept finishing them. And we'd spend a lot of time, too, um, on each piece to just get it right. And so we were fortunate that we got, you know, um, Fred Schneider from the, the B-52s to do a guest spot on it. He sings mm-hmm. on Hot Sauce. We got um, Jerry A. from Poison Idea to do a guest vocal, uh, Johnny Kelly from Typo Negative and Danzig and a pedal horse named Death on Drums. And, yeah. you know, lots of, um, t- you know, talented friends and and musicians to also both play on the um, the album. Yes. Do you feel because of you know because you and were Paula um, Paula Henderson from um, right Paula Henderson you know on, the Barry Sax player she helped out an awful lot on a lot of the songs. Right. Dave Smuda Smith played the trombone. Tom Timko was a did some great sax works. Sean Banks did bongos. Alicia Rowe. Rue does um, trumpet, trumpet yeah. uh, Jim Sorensen some drums, and yeah, we we were very fortunate to yes to have yeah. lots of friends and guest guest stars. Yeah. It was funny because I was just watching a documentary about is it Clive Davis who was on Arista Records, or he was Mr. Arista and he did lots of stuff and. You know, he was just very good at sort of, you know, all these artists that sell millions like Whitney Houston. But then he was talking about sort of how he brought Carlos Santana back, who slightly sort of wasn't really going to sell many, but he brought an album of kind of uh, with Carlos with lots of guest stars. Did you feel a bit like that, that you'd become one of those kind of, you know, bands, artists who are who, you know, now just would have people who just want to be on your record because you've become something of an institution? Well, it was more like with with Fred Schneider, for instance. It was for years ago. Even when we did the um, the record in '95, the Pro Drag record, he was asking if we'd like him to do something. And 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 at that point, we didn't really necessarily have something just right. But then when we wrote Hot Sauce, it was like, oh, this would be perfect. But we did. It was it was a sort of a natural progression, though. The call on people who we knew and you know we wanted them just as bad as they wanted to play with us and stuff but it was you know it's sort of a cliche right if you don't release a record in 700 years you you know you bring in some some people so admittedly we we did that but i think everyone's contribution to the record was so appropriate and fit in so well that you know we're pretty happy with it yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that I have noticed, and it came out last year, well, a couple of things, and a lot of bands as well, but it was a couple of books that came out on sort of fanzines from the 80s, and I sort of realised that 30 years seemed to be a passing of time where suddenly something can be quite disposed and you just chuck it in the recycling or even worse still, the landfill, and then suddenly somebody turns around and goes, no, my God, that's amazing archive, that's history, we need to put it in a museum and, and keep it. And I, I think with the passing of time, it does things do take on quite a different quality. And I've noticed that a lot of bands are suddenly, films start to appear, you know, like there was a film on the... Um, the chills and then the slits yeah. and then last night I was watching one on the Dolly mixture who was these kind of three um, women from Cambridge and, and you know it's only 40 minutes or 50 minutes but again it was a nice film and then the wedding present had one on the on the album George Best that they did and there was the go-betweens I mean have you been also sort of 
tempted to sort of bring out some some sort of documentary of the band um well we'll have to we'll have, have to, to think about that one yeah not to... not really i would i would guess you know it hasn't really entered my mind to to do that i guess more to just keep making music and well songs. on on youtube though uh i think around 95 or even before 95 we did a video called the big stick story and it's on youtube mm. now and it's sort of like a, a sort of a, a, a documentary but mm. you know but <laughs> but it's it's entertaining but yeah. um i hope you know i would think that well, we've had some people approach us to do some like interviews or stories and things like that. A friend of our, uh, ours, Roger Johansson is working on a, a project now where we're going to, you know, tell a story on, on a video. He's or a film he's making where a lot of other artists are too and things, but it, you know, there might be a possibility of something like that. Yes. And just kind of for someone from the UK, I mean, we used to have things like, stock car racing which was just cars banging mm-hmm. into each other then we had um motorbike we had speedway which is motorbikes what's the what's what's the love you know what is it about drag racing that you love so much well i guess um we grew up very close to the the track uh that might have had something to do with it right oldbridge township raceway park in um english town new jersey right i used to actually work there um Many years ago, as like a uh, motocross announcer and and things, and we, you know, we just sort of became. Yeah. Sort it's of, just like the power of the the top fuel cars and the um, you know, the high powered cars that, you know, the sound they create, and you know, that was like always an attraction, kind of like a loud rock concert or something. Yes, it's interesting that you brought up Speedway because when we were in Sheffield once recording, we went we we went to Speedway. There was a track by there, and I've never seen that before until then. And I thought that was pretty amazing, like the way they go around on those bikes with those spike tires or whatever whatever they do. It's yes, pretty, well, it's the way they they, they did it on like a. Yeah. A dirt like it's like kinda of like a dirt track or, mm-hmm. or something. Yes. Yeah, well, so we the... also went to Santa Pod drag strip in, in England. We went to North Weald Airfield in England, which is a, a an old World War Two airfield that they would run like drag races on and stuff. So we, we fortunately got exposed to some drag racing and, and motorsport um, you know, over there. Yes, and is it a sport that's still as popular now, is it? ever has been well it sort yeah, of i guess it is with a certain group of people i mean you know because uh you know I well don't... there was a time when drag racing america really had a a love affair with drag racing when you would see you know yeah. drag racing on shows like the monsters and you know it was a big part of pop culture then it sort of wavered or whatever but it's it still has some yeah some i mean strength. i guess uh, there was a lot of illegal racing on the streets and then that became like you know kind of a a thing where it's like uh you know you don't want to be a part of that because it's you know dangerous and you know all that and and it, it's just it, and it's also a pretty far cry a separation from you know the big NASCAR stuff that isn't really the same or have the same fan base. I don't think, but uh, yeah. 
Yes, well, I'll have to sort of do some research on this because um, it's one of yeah. those things I haven't come across much. And and though and last year, which wasn't that long ago, last year, mm. <laughs> but you did also did a, a Christmas album as well, which was you you know. Right, we did the Christmas mini LP, the soft up Santa. Um, right, which, inspired by that um, awesome photo that you. Right. Well, well the, we were wanting to do that for such a long time because when this photograph surfaced of me when I was about five years old sitting on this, you know, literal Santa, soft up Santa's lap, I just felt compelled that I, I would have to, you know, write a song about it. And, you know, we finally finally did that and of course there's you know other songs on the record too you know a few a few different things and the spoken word thing the boisterous birds of christmas eve but yeah the the soft up santa was a, a long time coming we've been you know putting that off for so long and then finally we said after we released the lp the newest lp we said you know now would be a good time to do right. that christmas record right yes. and that was um Right, we, we you finally you got the guitar track down right before um, our Otari 18 track decided to shit the bed, and um, it was the last thing we recorded on that. Um, right, the 16 track. Yeah. Right, the 16. Yes, track. amazing. And then we went into the studio and finished it, but we recorded the guitars for the Christmas mini LP here on the the home studio, and then we finished it up in the in a regular um, recording studio. Mm-hmm. So with well, a really good engineer, um, Eric Rachel, too. Right. And we never, you know, like I said, I never thought I'd write a Christmas song or do a, we would do a Christmas record, but we we did. And yeah. fortunately, it's gotten a lot of play over here on college radio and stuff, so we're we're pretty happy. Well, I'm not surprised. It's, it's fantastic. And what projects have you got? Because it lined up, because it seems like last year you managed to sort of you know, you did the uh, the L LP, and then obviously sourced up Santa. So, does that mean that your sort of everything is your desks are now cleared, and now you've just got to think of what to do next? Right. Well, and plus last year we did release the much of the best of Big Stick LP, and and but yeah, it's sort of like the desk is clear, and maybe now we're 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 thinking about you know recording recording some more and some new 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 music and. Um, you know, possibly reissuing some some of the other back catalog, but we are thinking about recording some um, new music. We we you know we work with the um, Forte Music Distribution um, over there in the UK on these projects, and they've been pretty good. Yes, and I was going to say because one thing that I noticed talking to quite a lot of people and bands is that they do love to just go back, or well, not just they suddenly have that moment they just want to archive. Is there have you sort of done most of your archiving of all the material that you've you've uh, recorded? Uh, not quite, not what, quite yet. Yeah. What do you mean? What do you mean by archiving, releasing it, or or just kind or, of realizing there's kind of bits and pieces that that have recorded, you know, like B sides or some quite good live tracks that they thought, actually, I would love to get this on, you know, digitized. Yeah, it well, and we then... did a, a little bit of that. Like, uh, we, we yeah, we've done on the much of the best of Big Stick album, we put the on the Black Cow song, which was a pretty obscure song that was um, originally released on a split we did with um, Sabadell on the Sonic Life label and and well yeah i mean we're yeah we're, i mean we're still like going through some very very old cassettes too and um occasionally you know 
you know, trying to see if there's anything um, on them that, you know, is still uh, still valid. Viable. Viable. And just lastly, what would you kind of say to a your your an eighteen year old self? You know, with all these kind of decades of experience and having mm. sort of created quite a lot. I, yeah. I think I would probably say to my eighteen year old self to um, well, there's I mean, there's obviously things that would you would do a little different or or. You know, I mean, it's sort of like you get caught up in the whirlwind. Well, not to be so much influenced by anyone, but just to do what's in your own heart and, you know. Right. Well, yeah, it it is strange how when you do this, even through all different stages, there's people, you know, trying to. To um, shape it. To shape it or, or they just, yeah, well, that's just the nature of the beast, I guess, as soon as you, you know, really get any footing in this business. But I guess it's kind of a cliche, but I guess But it doesn't have to be. You know, you should really just do, you know, if your stuff's really weird and out there and, you know, you think it's just too strange for anybody, just do it anyway. Right. Right. Yes. But in, on the other hand, if you are just, you know, a very standard sort of thing and, yeah, you know, well, then you can just play for the, um, you know, the Philharmonic Orchestra. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> hey, there's a, you know, there's a place for everyone in music, right? Right, right. There you go. That's what I would, I would say. Yeah, there's a, there's a place for everyone and, you know, try to be smart and, you know, try not to get, try not to get tripped up. By uh, you know the the industry because it's a you know it is a dog you know it is a doggy dog sort of thing but you know just right try and to even keep a, a part of um like the inspirations too I forgot to mention earlier is like all the um the very cool theme songs for all the TV shows throughout the years too mm-hmm. like the Mission Impossible's and the you know the mm-hmm. you know all those things too it's like oh if you can't write lyrics just write good you know, good music. Do what you can, do what you're good at, and, you know, hope that you'll meet somebody or some people who share your your thing, and sometimes you get get fortunate. I know. Or that can complement what you do and add to it. Excellent. Well, look... Thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this interview. I'm so grateful and um, I'm just so pleased that it's sort of been so painless on the recording front and there's been no kind of bizarre echoes or sort of distortions. So yeah. that's been amazing. Well, thank you ever so much. And I'll tell well, you when I... appreciate it, David. Yeah. Thank you, David. And, you know, your voice is very nice on the phone and um, you and know, I appreciate you for what you do too. You know? And for those people listening to this who have supported us, whether it's recently or over the years or here or there or whatever, we we do want these people to know that we we genuinely um, appreciate them for it, and it, it does mean a lot to us. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, yes. Well, thank you. This has been really nice. And, um, you know, have a lovely evening and week. Yeah, thank you too. And yeah. Okay. okay. Take care there. Okay. okay. Cheers. 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 See you later. Bye. Bye-bye.